0: Well, again, good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today. Uh, On this long weekend, you get the prize. Look at your neighbor and say, congratulations, you made it to church on a long weekend. Okay, all right. Look at yourself in the mirror if you're at home. No, wait a second, never mind. (laughs) Well, if you're here right now watching with us, congratulations. Um, This morning, we're going to continue on in a series that we started two weeks ago. Uh, We had Q&A Sunday last Sunday, and uh, it was a really fun time. I always enjoy those. Um, kind of having that more conversation, dialogue. At the end of every sermon, by the way, we have been making time for a question or two. There is a number that you can uh, text questions to uh, during the message, uh, 604-426-1230, 604-426-1230, if you want to get a question in during a worship service towards the end, if we have time. We are going to end with communion today, so it'll be a, a little different as well. But I want to jump back into this series on church and state, and uh, really wrestle a little more, and we're going to spend a couple Sundays on this. Some of the inspiration for this, of course, is there's an election coming up in the states. Our parliament here has been prorogued by the governing party, which is a minority party, meaning they have less seats than a majority in parliament, and, and rumor that maybe there'll be an election. Who knows what happens when parliament comes back together after the next throne speech. So there's a lot of political upheaval going on in these seasons. The other thing is, during COVID, a lot of discussion about what's the role of the state in sort of talking to uh, the rest of society, and people are really wrestling with that around the globe, and what does that look like? And I think churches as well, we see that churches have been wrestling with this. So this morning, I want to dig in uh, and read two passages to you to sort of set the stage, and then we want to talk a little more about this relationship between the church and the state. If you were willing to in the room, I'm gonna read from the gospel and it's super traditional and I'm not always a guy of tradition. I mean, we just remodeled a whole worship space uh, as we were entering into COVID. So there's some traditions that I think are helpful and when they're not helpful, we discard them for a season. But one of them, Is sort of this um, standing when the gospel is read. And so I want to invite you, if you're able to do so, of course, to stand with me. Uh, You know, if you don't want to, this is, you know, we're low church Protestants. Nobody's going to force you to. The ushers don't have any of those uh, old Mennonite thwacking sticks, so you're fine. Um, But I want you to hear this this morning from Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 13 through 16. And in terms of interpretation of the Bible, when people ask, well, what's this? you talk about being an Anabaptist, Baptist, uh, what, is, what is one of the things? One of the things is that the Bible's not flat. And you see how I'm bending my Bible up as sort of a, a hill or a mountain, as it were. The top of the Bible or the peak of the Bible is the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings of Jesus, and we use that to read the rest. We don't read Old Testament without going through Jesus. So that's one very Anabaptist kind of thing. Jesus is the center, and if you're willing to, say Amen. Uh, And it changes a lot. So when you get some pop atheists reading out of the old law and they're saying this and this, this is what Christians, blah, 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 like you have to read it in context. You have to understand how the book functions. Okay, enough of that sermon. Sermon one is done. Amen. So let's read from the Sermon on the Mount. This is many things Jesus teaches. There's just one little section here, and he says this He says, You, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by people. And then he shifts different image. Verse 14, you, you are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to the whole house. Verse 16, in the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before people So they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. And then I want to read one other verse here from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms. Psalm 20, verse 7. Psalm 20, verse 7. And Psalm 20 is talking about asking God for help and even ends by invoking it in the kings of Israel at the time. But it's interesting. Verse 7 is an amazing verse. It says this. Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we will trust... In the name of the Lord our God, let's pray, and then you can be seated. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come together to listen to the scandalous, subversive word of God that brings life and new hope to all people everywhere. Do what only you can do, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Please be seated if you're willing. I say that, and I've never had someone who... Like, people will sit sometimes if we're standing mostly all together, but I've never really had the opposite where someone stood the whole time while everyone was seated. But I'm ready for new things, so go for it. Um, And some of the traditions where I became a a Christian in the Pentecostal church, sometimes during the sermon, people would be very interactive, right? And... uh, so I know it annoys sometimes when I ask, hey, say amen if you want to, or yes, or so be it, or whatever, but in those traditions, you actually would have people jump up and say things like, preach it, pastor, or, or word, or amen, or all of that. Uh, when that happens in our conservative sort of uh, Vancouver laid-back environment, I will think truly either illness has struck or there's a new move of God afoot. So anyway, yeah, <laughs> there you go, there you go. For those of you listening, there was a couple of shout-outs at that moment. So. so these two texts today, I want to frame what we're going to talk about as we layer in a little more about church and state, and then how do, how are we to respond to this as believers living in states. The big idea that I want you to grab today is this. Salt and light in Matthew 5 are contrasts to the larger society. Jesus is saying, you, speaking to those following him, are to be salt and light in comparison to the society around us. Uh, and so the world needs the church to be sort of an alternative city, an alternative politics, as it were, that is not neither co-opted by the powers of states nor crushed by the powers of states. So hear that. This salt and light tells us that we have a contrast, we're a contrast community to the world around us as we follow Jesus and his teachings. The church is to be an alternative politics in the midst of the powers around us. And I've said it again and again, but we're gonna talk a little more about this this morning, that the states around us often want to co-opt the church into a civil religion version of Christianity, or they wanna crush it, they want to exclude it, they wanna marginalize it and remove it entirely. And so we have to wrestle with this as what does it mean to follow Jesus uh, in this context and let ourselves not be co-opted nor crushed, amen? And so I want to give you one more thing as we go by. It. We're going to review a little bit from last Sunday and just layer in a little more. Um, in our statement of faith, as a part of the NAB uh, Fellowship of Churches, and also those of us with Anabaptist influence would agree with this. It says this in continuity, and I'm going to read it to you this morning. In continuity with our immediate forefathers and foremothers, and the larger fellowship of Baptists throughout history. And Anabaptists, by the way. We seek to practice and propagate by God's grace the following convictions. We believe religious liberty, rooted in scripture, is the inalienable right of all individuals to freedom of conscience with ultimate accountability to God. And there's some scripture references there. By the way, these outlines are on PDF uh, on our website with each sermon. And we do have some print copies every Sunday when you come in. You can grab them off the tables in the foyer. We're not distributing them to reduce physical contact. goes on and says this, bullet point number two, church and state exist by the will of God. Each has a distinctive concerns and responsibilities free from the control of other. This we're going to talk a little bit about today as well. In Roman Catholic teaching, this is called the doctrine of subsidiarity, the idea that anything that possibly can be done by a least centralized authority should be done that way, that power should be constantly pushed downward instead of centralized and upward. And this actually comes right out of Scripture. Church and state exist by the will of God, each has distinctive concerns and responsibilities. When that line is blurred either by co-option or crushing, we've got a problem and the church has to speak truth to the powers and remind them that they are limited, finite, and they should not be centralizing all authority. Bullet point number three, Christians should pray for civil leaders and obey and support governments in matters not contrary to Scripture. Again, Romans 13 talks about this uh, very much so, and it's, it's describing the situation, it's not necessarily prescribing what we are to do, but the reality of how God is working in the midst of the powers. And interesting about this is that sometimes uh, church can become too aligned with the state, and we become a chaplain to the culture of the states around us, and we forget that there's also a time to stand up and speak prophetically against things that are evil and destructive within society. And the fourth bullet point is simply this. The state should guarantee religious liberty to all persons, regardless of their religious preference, consistent with the common good. Authentic Christianity actually stands up for the religious rights of all and to reject. In some ways, we are to be people who create that space for others to wrestle with freedom, with truth. Amen? All right. So these things are important to wrestle with today. Now, I want to just share with you a, a quote from the Barman Declaration. Uh, some of us here have German family background in our church. And um, as you know, one of the most notorious examples of the church being co-opted, and we're seeing modern examples of this too, but I can, I'll point back to, to World War II and in, in Nazi Germany as well, that there were some Christians that stood up to what was going on, but the church was being co-opted and being Nazified for the aims of the state, which, of course, in hindsight we see as a horrible, awful thing. But at the beginning of the time, people were like, oh, no, this is what Romans 13, we are applying Romans 13, we're just following along with our governments as are. But there were some Christians within Germany that stood up against this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of them. And um, they made this declaration in 1934 as they saw this nationalism taking over, this co-option of the church. And one of the statements in the Barman Declaration says this, Jesus Christ, as he is attested to us in Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and death. You say, well, that doesn't sound too crazy. But if you think about the state claiming its ultimate loyalty, its blood loyalty, in fact, that blood loyalty thing is Often a clue, when you hear a nationalist ethnic claim within a government, even today, uh, even within you see some of the racism in the states, there is some of that language. Or within um, the the Communist Party uh, claiming that there is a loyalty that you need to have if you have family origins from this or that ethnicity, that language should clue you in as a follower of Christ that there's something demonic in it. And we see that throughout human history. And again and again, Scripture confronts that demonic call to blood loyalty over the common humanity and image of God in all people. So when you hear a state using that to bring false unity, Christians should stand up and confront that kind of language. All right, let me go a little farther this morning. Are you still awake? I know this is a little bit deep stuff. Okay, it's it's warm in here. I get it. You're at home. It's a sermon. This is good stuff. Hang with me. The Lord's going to use it in your life, all right? So let's look again. We reviewed this big pattern in scripture last, or two weeks ago, reading from Samuel chapter 8. The nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, were to have decentered power, and God would raise up uh, prophets and God would raise up judges from time to time when they had to deal with an overwhelming force from the outside. But at the end of the day, they looked to the nations around them and said, Give us a king. And Samuel 8 goes this bantering between the prophet Samuel. And the people's saying, give us a king. And Samuel wrestling with the Lord. And the Lord says to to Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But I'm going to condescend and let them have a king. But I'll tell you what, when you co-opt and let yourselves have this centralizing authority, he's going to raise an army. He's going to go after your resources. He's going to control your sons and daughters. And it will not usually end well for you because you're rejecting God as sovereign, as the ultimate, only one worthy to hold that kind of authority. And so Samuel 8 is sort of another backstory of this theme in Scripture that centralizing power, ultimately humans can't control it. So in modern terms, again, we see this as well. And I think young people have been, I was going to say brainwashed, that might be too harsh of language. I think that our society, uh, particularly I would say in places like Canada and the United States, that we're not doing a good job of teaching people this idea that powers need to be checked, that we need to have structures that legitimately push power away from the center and down to the most local expression of it. That is the most healthy and accountable way for power to be exercised. And I think some of us have bought into the lie as, well, as one conservative Catholic said this, he said, most Americans, it's easy to pick on Americans when you're in Canada, most Americans still see government as a force for good. And he says, I don't deny that the good is possible from government, but calling it a force for good seems strange in a bloody era of state-sponsored violence and dark utopianism. And we are on the cusp of repeating these things politically. And I, again, I think it's so easy for the church to be co-opted on the left or on the right about the solutions of centralizing power. And yet we know over and over and over again, we humans cannot handle it. That's why I love when you look at the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that God gifts all the people in the church. That as pastor, I am here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that it's constantly releasing and empowering and lifting up others, that that's what good leadership, servant leadership looks like in the Bible. Pope goes on and says this, and you may not agree with all of this, but he has a good point, I think. He said, in the 20th century alone, states, states, murdered about 162 million of their own subjects. This figure doesn't include tens of millions of foreigners they killed in war, whatever, whoever was not in their state. How can we speak of states as protecting people? No amount of private crime could claim such a toll. The term state, despite its bloody history, doesn't disturb most people. And yet it would seem that an institution that can take 200 million lives within the past century needs to be replaced. As morality loses its cultural grift, we can expect the state to show its nature nakedly. He goes on and says, St. Augustine took a dim view of the state as punishment for sin. (laughs) Ha, 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 tell that to your politicians. You are my punishment for sin. At your next meet and greet rally, whatever that looks like in COVID. He said that the state without justice is nothing but a gang of robbers writ large. Wow, St. Augustine always has some good words. Of course, the question is what do we replace it with? It's learning, again, to be more humane. It's learning, again, to decenter power. It's learning, again, the powers of our neighborhood and engaging with the power that God has given us. Walter Brueggemann says this, and hang with me, I'm almost to to the middle of the end here. My long-term teaching has been devoted to making the case that the Bible is a strange, emancipatory, a setting-free voice among us that cannot be domesticated by any of our ideologies of the left or the right or the center. Karl Barth coined the phrase, it's strange new world of the Bible. What we want to do in the church and in our culture is often get rid of strangeness and the newness in order to accommodate our ideologies. He says, conservatives want to empty the Bible of its power by reducing it to theological cliches, and liberals want to empty it by historical criticism that makes the Bible non-contemporary, meaning not valuable to us right now in our time, and allows us to do whatever we want. The primary teachings of the Bible, the judgment of God and the hope of God, are distinct from Hear me here. And over against all of our liberal and conservative ideologies, unity and purity in the church can happen when liberals and conservatives together remember that we are called to repentance because we've made a mockery of God's truth. Nobody has the high moral ground when we're confronted with that. So the church is to be a voice of the scriptures and a voice of God on the earth and to say, again, this centralizing identity and centralizing of power around categories of liberal or conservative empire is a constant temptation but there's another way of being human. So let me, I gotta move on, I'm I'm spending too much time on that, but uh, are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? Are you smelling what I'm putting out there? Yes, amen, a little bit? You may have to go back and listen again to this. So why are we drawn to these centralizing powers? I think there's a couple things that really are attractive to us, our sense of lack of power. And we look at the larger centralizing powers, the government in Ottawa, Maybe the government on Canby Street. (laughs) And the powers want us to think they're all powerful, and they want us to trick us into surrendering more of our personal say-so and the subsidiarity. They they sometimes forget that their role is to push down power instead of controlling it more. I think sometimes this sense of power in our own lives, we look to centralizing authorities, and we somehow just sort of like breathe a sigh of relief, saying, I'm just going to throw it to a king, and the king will take care of me. And yet we are told from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation that you have say-so, that God has given you freedom and power. And yes, you can give some of that to a larger society, but you need to take some of that back in your own life and in your own neighborhood. I think that sense of lack of power, we get sort of in this downward spiral and we're like, oh, somebody save me. At the end of the day, there's only one who can save you. And he does not live in Ottawa or D.C. or Beijing or anywhere else (laughs) in the world's capitals. So there's something about taking back your personal power. And the Bible talks about this. Through grace and sin and repentance, God empowers us to live differently. We've been sold imperial lies as well. Why do we think this? We've been sold the lies. We wanna believe that that again, the empire is the only answer. Rome wanted them to believe that. Babylon wanted them to believe that. Every centralizing power wants you to believe that it is the true source of peace and security. But again and again and again, we see it is full of lies. Millions upon millions, there's been more death by states than any other form of violence. Think about that. And yet we buy it, peace and security at the end of the Roman sword. I think that's the work of the enemy. 1 John 5.19 says this, that the kingdoms of the world are under the influence of the evil one. Yes, God works through them, Romans 13, but they're also being swayed by the works of a violent actor that wants to bring destruction and death. And let me tell you, the enemy doesn't care where destruction and death comes from and will use any tool, including centralizing power. Well, let me give you one more little quote here. Manny uh, Complido, I'm killing his last name, An acquaintance of mine, Anabaptist preacher, quoting a Canadian philosopher, says this, within a single nation, we might have both a church of the left and the right, a church of the unions and the church of order and of hierarchy, a church for contraception and a church against it. Again, we might have a church that sings Te Deum to celebrate national victories given by God who had won in the same time a Gott mit uns for the Germans and obviously a French God for the French. Such are the grotesque results of political carnival and what it means for the church. Such is the very serious cost of politics for the church when it fails to obey its calling to demythologize politics. Hear this quote, demythologize politics, desacralize it, taking the power out of it, saying politics is not your God, it will not solve it, so take the sacredness out of it and reduce it in status. Again, our call is to demythologize the politics of the states, to take the worship of the state out of it and reduce it in its status. Oh, I gotta go on and land this plane. A few more reasons. Why are we tempted by putting all of our hope in the state? Corporations, by the way, have the same album, different song. Album, different song. I can never say that word right. I don't know why. Corporations do the same thing. There's a reason why nations try to break up monopolies from time to time because they're having power competitions with also the state. So you have two kinds of centralizing forces, and yet we need to understand that they're at work of turning us into consumers instead of humanizing us in the image and likeness of God. I think we also look to the centralizing power because of civic and relational laziness. We don't want to use our personal power. We are to take higher ownership and stewardship of the relationships in our lives. We don't simply hand that over to others. We need to take that back. And I think finally we forget that once we give away our personal power, it's very hard to get it back. Once you release that personal power into a totalizing system, it's very hard to get it back because that system doesn't want to do it. And that's where injustices multiply, where personal injustices become societal injustices and it's very hard to get it back. The problem with wokeness and critical theory, I'm gonna geek out just for a second, take a nap for five seconds, if this isn't you. The problem of wokeness and critical theory is it decenters power based on these secondary identities and sees power as like a zero-sum game. Someone must lose in order for another to gain, and so those aren't even the right answers to it as well. So the big idea, again, is this. The church is an alternative politics in the midst of the powers around us. I wanted to get a little farther today, but again, I got long-winded and I want to land it because we're going to do communion in just a moment. But next Sunday, I want to dig into this a little deeper to talk about what is the real difference between civil religion, Christianity that's co-opted by a state, like classical state church European powers, which I believe were also uh, influenced demonically. Some of it was good, some of it was not. Civil religion, or when A Canadian prime minister and American president says God bless Canada or God bless America. What are they invoking? Is that the God revealed in Jesus or not? I want to talk about that next Sunday. Civil religion versus authentic faith and the church as salt and light again as a contrast society to the world around us. And why it's so important because we bring a hope to the world that governments can never bring. They want us to believe they can bring it, but they can't. Only the Lord Jesus himself can do that. So this morning... I wanna pause there. We're introducing big concepts. I hope you can roll with me on it for a little bit here. But it is my fear, it is my fear that Christians during election seasons, whether it's in the States, and I'm an immigrant here, so I can't even vote in Canada, so I can take pot shots against the Canadian government. Oh, mind. okay. I'm a permanent resident, I have some rights. I don't know how how much I can push it. But, um, or in Ottawa, They want to say, these are the answers. And I think as the church we need to relearn the doctrine of subsidiarity, that we are here to tell to the state that you need to release power, that you should not be trying to centralize all power, that there needs to be other powers involved in neighborhoods and uh, para-government or non-governmental organizations and in churches and in religious bodies, that that is important for a flourishing, thriving society. And that is a value that I don't think people are being taught anymore, that there is power that should be released and pushed downward constantly. And as you become aware of it, it should influence how you gather, where you put your personal energy into. And I want to get put to you this morning that the local church, if it's not this church, find another one. There's many, 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 but that the local church is worth your investment and support for the sake of the world, for the sake of human flourishing, for the sake of reclaiming your own personal power in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and for the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who is the one who can only take all of the authority and all power. And when we read in Revelation, we see that how God rules with power is so different than human versions of power and centralization. God is constantly creating outside of God's self. God is constantly self-limiting and releasing again and again and again. And so we want to enter into that and we want to live differently because of that. Okay, Lord, thank you for the people here today. Thank you for taking us on this journey that is both intellectual, philosophical, but also super practical in how we make different choices with our personal power. And God, forgive us for not being learners. God, forgive us for forgetting the lessons of the last 100 years, 200 years, 2,000 years, 5,000 years, 6,000 years, Lord, all the way back. However you want to measure it. That there's an enemy that wants us to release the power that you have rightly given us in subsidiary units, whether it's as individuals, as families, and as spiritual family formed through Jesus. God, help us to rise up and to make a difference, to be a blessing community, and also being a prophetic voice against injustice, but knowing that it's not rooted in believing that all the answers lie in the center, but that they lie on the margins and on the edges, and that that is where true power should be pushed out to and where you are at operation and you are at work as well. So stir us, O oh Lord, in our minds and our imaginations, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, um... We have one question, I guess, so it's on the screen here this morning. How, as Christians, do we balance questioning state, and yet as Christians, have respect and supporting and praying for our leaders? Hmm, that's a good question. I feel like um, I'm talking about the question in the whole series, uh, so it's good. Hang on, you're getting the answers as we go. Um, I think it's understanding the difference between I respect you as an image bearer of God, but I can disagree with your policies, I can disagree with the ideology behind your policy. And I think people, especially young people, have not been taught particularly in the identity politics of the day how to separate those two. They've been told they're all the same, they're always meshed together. No, they're not. No, they're not. And in fact, as Christians, we say you have a core identity that's deeper in being created in the image and likeness of God and any other identity that wants to say it's on top needs to be challenged. That's a hard word, especially in woke Western world. And some of that is really important, given it's societal injustices and racism, for sure. But Christians should have a different way of approaching social justice. We're going to get into that, in fact, uh, either next Sunday or the final Sunday in this series as well. What does Christian social action look like? Why is it different than necessarily the approaches of the world around us? And what do we have to bring that, in fact, is more of a gift and, and empowering? So, again, I think it's super simple. You support the dignity in every individual. You respect people. Full stop. Because they're created in the image and likeness of God. There, Jesus died for them as much as He died for you, right? Um, and I think supporting them doesn't necessarily mean agreeing with policies. If they're, particularly if they're policies that are about trying to reduce, trying to put more power in the hands of fewer, those are policies that the Bible fundamentally calls out again and again and again and again. And if Christians forget that, it doesn't matter how. If we're just simply going to be co-opted either by the left or the right because we've forgotten our core of a decentering god who empowers by the holy spirit each and every person and that were to be that kind of community so i think it's a fine line paul on one hand was said pray for the leaders for those in authority live at peace as much as it depends on you but paul on the other hand said when necessary he was ready to go to jail for the cause of christ and then we see the social teaching that comes throughout old testament and new testament about the kinds of communities where god is at work And it's this decentering again and again and again, and that God's power can always be multiplied, so it's a good thing.